Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you welcome Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. Okay. Hi listeners and welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast. Today we are going to be talking about trees. Trees, yes, trees you say Naomi. Trees, Tim, trees. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or rather, the lack of them when it comes to Ireland. Um, this is something we've actually touched on briefly in the past, and we thought it was time to really tackle the historical and political factors that have contributed to Ireland becoming a largely treeless island, which isn't actually its natural state. Mm. Because this is actually quite a serious issue from all sorts of perspectives, not least Ireland's responsibility to sustainable environmental policies and biodiversity, and the cutting of carbon emissions in the face of the global climate change emergency. Yeah, right. So according to Kyle which is the Irish state forestry management body, uh, today Ireland has one of the lowest forest covers of any country in the EU, with only 11% of the state devoted to forest, and that's compared to a European average of 33.5%. So really, really low down there. I think this would strike some people as counterintuitive because Definitely. Ireland associated with green, right? Mm. I mean, the familiar tourist imagery of Ireland is this wild, untouched landscape. And part of the attraction for a lot of people who to, who come here is to get away from human con- constructed landscape, to you know get away from it all and be surrounded by this unspoiled nature. Mm. But ironically, some of the most iconic landscapes that you'll see on tourism posters are completely unnatural natural and they've actually been entirely shaped by human factors yeah so like you know if you think of these famous mountain ranges that you might see on like tourist posters like i don't know like the mcgillicuddy reeks or in county Kerry, or -hmm. the donegal mountains or we were talking a little while ago about ben bulbin uh, in another episode Mm -hmm. you know we have this image of ireland of being full of these rugged windswept pristine landscapes But if you look closer at mountains like that or landscapes like that, you'll notice that it's completely, like completely denuded of trees. That's one of the reasons Mm -hmm. why it actually looks so dramatic is because like there often isn't a single tree um, in those scenes. And in many cases, it's almost entirely kind of um, covered with quite a small variety of low-growing bush or, or vegetation. The same is true of Ireland's famous peat bogs, which are incredibly extensive, especially in the midlands of the country. In Ireland, these bogs have been such an essential part of life for so long that it's actually quite difficult to imagine a time when they weren't there. Mm. But those places too were once completely covered by trees. Yeah, and, and the interestingly, the bog itself is proof of that, right? And there's mm. proof all over the place when you look a bit closer. So if you've ever been in one of Ireland's peat bogs, um, you'll actually, you know, you'll often find tree stumps amid the turf, right? Um, or big pieces of what's called bog wood. So you'll see this for sale very often. It's this very kind of beautiful polished wood um, that you find in the bog. But that's wood mm. that has been there since the forest used to be there thousands of years mm-hmm. ago. And those pieces of wood have been preserved in the, the acid of the peat. So, Tim, the existence of those bogs gives us a clue as to how far back forestry in Ireland goes. Because mm-hmm. as I understand it, the bogs actually only came into existence when the people started cutting down trees in these areas. Right, sure. Now, <laughs> when I started looking this up, there were some you know, enormous dates. Once we start using dates like 4000 BC, we really just have to accept that. We don't know these dates, you know, for sure. It's very, it's very much kind of in the ballpark and things can change all the time. Uh, But it seems Mm -hmm. like that's kind of the time that we're looking at. 4000 BC um, would have seen, from that moment on in Ireland, we would have started to see a clearance of the forests. um, And that's because people started farming at this point or kind of farming in one place at least so we have some amazing evidence of the earliest farmers in Ireland at a site in County Mayo called the Cager Fields mm-hmm. and 
This site in the Cajun Fields is possibly the oldest known agricultural field system in the world. Mm. Like it's really, really ancient. It's not sure exactly what date it, we can date it to, but m most of the dating techniques have put it somewhere in the Neolithic period. So yeah, around, um, uh, they think about 3500 BC. Mm. Now, to kind of situate everyone in the past here, like what does that even mean? It's so long ago. Uh, 3500 BC is roughly around the same time as those big passage tombs like Newgrange were being built. Mm. Um, so it's pre-metal. So people were just using stones. Um, they found habitations and tombs around this site. So that um, suggests that people were living there kind mm -hmm. of more or less permanently, like this was a kind of permanently occupied site, uh, rather than moving around with the seasons, which is oh, kind I of see. the more typical pattern that, that people associate with the Neolithic period. Mm -hmm. We know that they were tilling the land with cattle. Um, that's something that, that you know. And then, so when you add cattle, when you add livestock to this farming community, wherever you have livestock, you have grazing. And one thing that animal grazing does is it prevents regrowth of forests. Mm. Because if you have animals in this general vicinity, they're going to eat all the little saplings before forests can recover. So it kind of changes that, the dynamic, right? Rather mm. than, let's say, a kind of slash and burn farming technique that you might have um, otherwise. Now, so those cage fields were discovered under the bogland. So they're older wow. than the bog itself, which wow. is pretty amazing. Yeah. And... If you, yeah, if you if you look at an aerial an aerial picture of the site, you can see that it's surrounded by this huge big blanket bog, um, which is still there. And all of that bog was originally a forest. These bogs developed precisely because people like those Neolithic farmers at the Cajic Fields were cutting down the trees um, that used to cover that part of Ireland. So how did that transformation happen? What happened is without a critical mass of trees to absorb rainfall and soak up all that rain, the terrain in places like that gradually transformed into wetland. And when the wetland became acidic in certain more temperate and rainy climates like Ireland's, then they preserve vegetation, which turns into this dense organic matter called peat or turf. Right, yeah. And the peat itself has come over thousands of years, has mm -hmm. come to play this very a significant ecological role uh, in itself. So peat bogs are really, really widespread in Ireland. They're all over the country and they harbour a huge amount of wildlife that has adapted to live there. Mm. And interestingly, as we will talk about later, they're also a major carbon sink. So they're a little bit like coal or oil deposits because they contain this huge amount of compacted ancient organic matter that's kind of trapped um, in, in, inside the peat kind mm. of forever, right? Uh, indefinitely. Until it's burned, right? And of course, mm. like oil or gas, turf has provided fuel for local people for millennia because it burns quite well. Um, so much so that mm. some of the major peat fields like the Bog of Allen in the center of the country have given rise to actual peat harvesting industries. Now that's become quite controversial in recent years, as we'll discuss later, partly because the removal of that natural carbon sink um, you know, emits carbon and also because turf is a finite resource and like you mentioned Tim it's an important habitat in itself it takes thousands of years to form and once it's gone it'll be more or less gone for good. Nevertheless people are attached to the tradition of peat harvesting and it can be quite a hot political topic. Yeah, we've actually always wanted to make an episode on the bog. Yeah, we have <laughs> we'll actually, get there eventually. We'll make a bog episode. We will. <laughs> we'll make a bog episode. Um, uh, I've just realized saying that we'll make an episode on the bog might actually... <laughs> <laughs> might give us the best uh, image, mental image. Uh, but no, there is actually loads to say. There seriously is loads to say about the politics and the history of the bog. So yes. it's something we'd love to get around to in the future. Um, anyway, listen, the, the felled lumber that made way for those bogs was extremely valuable as a fuel as well, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, so a lot of a lot of what we're seeing in this um, episode and around these resources actually comes down to fuel. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the Neolithic period... Um, it finishes up and we start to see farmers perfecting agriculture in Ireland. They get metal, they get horses, you know, all kinds of things happen and farming grows and grows and grows. And forest cover um, over the next few thousand years fluctuates. It doesn't necessarily just start going down immediately. Um, it seems that forest cover fluctuates for ages mm. with a general downward trend mm -hmm. over the millennia uh, where forests are slowly, slowly, slowly being um, cleared. 
but you know, Ireland is a very wet and rainy and very fertile country. So forest definitely in the lowlands had a big chance of coming back, you know, rebounding. They had periods um, of rebounding kind of, and then they were cleared again, kind of. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, it could grow back up, you know, relatively quickly. Uh, what's interesting is that according to Kailcha anyway, um, most of the mountains had been completely cleared and completely replaced with bogs and heathland about 2,500 years ago. And that's because they were just in that bit harsher climate and they couldn't really rebound mm. in the same way as the lowlands. So so the McGillicuddy Reeks and the Donegal Mountains have looked like that for 2,500 years. Wow. Um, mm. What's interesting though, right, is the place names. Place names are like a kind of archaeological record in themselves or linguistic record. The place names of Ireland attest to the ongoing presence of significant forests in Gaelic Ireland. So any place name that begins with the anglicization Kyle or Kill, that comes from Quill. Um, and it can also come from Kill, which means church, but Quill means forest. Names like Derry, uh, which you'll often see as a prefix or suffix on Irish place names like Derry Fada or Eden Derry or the famous dairy that refers refers to an oak grove and that seems to have had a kind of religious significance in Gaelic Ireland. Place names that feature the Anglo- anglicization Gary uh, sometimes come from Gwirha which describes woodland that runs beside a river. Mm, yeah there's just absolutely loads of them mm-hmm. and I was looking at an article by uh, um, a researcher called John McLaughlin it was in the Irish Forestry Journal of which I never thought I'd be sitting down and having a good read of but <laughs> it was actually really interesting um it was uh, published in uh, 2016 and it's an article mm. called trees and woodland names in irish place names and there were just so many different kind of um versions or aspects of trees and bushes and and vegetation that mm. that was um mentioned in this article uh, so john mclaughlin mentions that about 20 percent of all ireland's townlands make reference to trees wow about 20 percent, which is massive mm. yeah um He notes that this shouldn't really surprise us because if we think about Gaelic Ireland, this was for most of of the Gaelic Irish period. Mm. Um, So let's situate ourselves, let's say, from uh, the beginning of um, the early Middle Ages, let's say, until right up until the 17th century, really. Um, We're talking about Gaelic Ireland. For most of that time, there weren't really any major road systems um, mm. There were roads, but not major road systems like we would know them today. So trees were important as geographical markers huh. when you're walking through forests or from one wooded area to another. You know, you're like, oh, that's the that's the place with all the oak trees or, you know, right. that's the place with all the ash trees. <laughs> you know, it makes a lot more sense. Right. Um, so they're kind of way marks. And we also know that by the early Middle Ages, people in Ireland were deliberately planting and maintaining forests, mm. um, you know, that they would put down themselves for lumber, mm. to to kind of produce lumber for their local community, which is interesting because it shows you that by that stage, obviously, the natural forests were either too remote, you know, too far away from the settlements or too depleted to depend upon, mm. um, you know, so there was a need to start artificial farming. Um, you also hear a lot of references to trees in Irish names, mm. right? So... Um, Magdara, uh, you know, famously, like son of the oak, or Odrainon, which means hawthorn or, or blackthorn. That's a name. It's very common in Connemara. O'Loughlin also notes that trees figure considerably in the Oum alphabet, which was kind of a shorthand mm. uh, written alphabet for the Irish language, probably used between the 4th and the 9th centuries. At least five of the 18 letters in this alphabet are named for trees. And it's possible that many more refer to tree names that were lost in later centuries. They include a solia, which means willow tree and makes an S sound, and dura, which means oak, as we mentioned, and makes a D sound. I really love this, actually, kind of hearing the sounds of the Oum alphabet in modern Irish Irish words yeah. for trees today. It's really fun, yeah. And it was thought for a while that the whole OM alphabet was modelled completely around trees because if you know the OM alphabet, it's it's kind of made up of lines and forks, like forked lines, which mm. look a bit like branches. And I, when I was looking this up, I saw it referred to more than once as the quote-unquote Celtic tree alphabet. Oh, wow. Which is, as far as I can tell, it's a, it's a term that historians of this alphabet do not like at all, so I won't. <laughs> I won't push that one. Um, yeah, there isn't there isn't that much evidence that this is completely tree based. Um, but you know, it did occur to me while looking it up, you know, that 
OM, you know, the OM alphabet instances that we have today, uh, some people call it OGM, by the way, um, mm. or OM. Um, the, the OM alphabet that we, we have today mostly survives on stone, right? Mm-hmm. We see it, there's standing stones that where we can still see um, uh, words written out in OM. Mm-hmm. But it occurred to me, like, of course people were writing this on trees, right? Because it's way easier to, to write this on, into a tree trunk right. than it would be to write into, into stone. And if, if you have something important to see that everyone needs to see, you know, you put it on the biggest tree. And, like, this is a vertical alphabet, right? It's a vertical alphabet of that course. goes up and down. And it's horizontal lines, which is exactly the kind of lines you would cut into a tree trunk if right. you were trying to make an alphabet um I, d- I really don't know if that's like a thing but it, it surely it was right there must be a connection there that would totally seem to make sense <laughs> mm. um so now we get into the kind of political part right because a new phase of deforestation came with the large-scale colonization of ireland through the tudor and Stuart plantations of the 16th and 17th centuries We've discussed these before in the podcast, how lumber was one of the major resources that colonial adventurers sought to exploit in Ireland, and also the land beneath ancient forest, once it was removed, was just incomparably nutrient-rich and desirable for farming. Mm, Yeah, so it's difficult to know exactly what proportion of Ireland's forest disappeared during this period. Uh, because, of course, you know, people weren't necessarily keeping records at all mm-hmm. um, uh, of this per- particular resource extraction. Um, but by all available evidence, it must have been pretty considerable um, because not only did plantations require clearing land, right, uh, to set up new farms, to set up new towns. Mm. Um, but we also know that tree cover was removed deliberately as a security measure mm. in the kind of environs of these settlements, mm. um, because, of course, the Gaelic Irish would use forests as a base from which to attack uh, these colonial plantations. Right. Gaelic communities who had been driven off planted land were generally driven into poorer or more remote territories that might still be thickly wooded. And that meant that these areas would also be felled as new populations settled down and began to farm land there. Mm, right. So no matter what way you look at it, there must have been a lot, a really, really a lot of tree felling mm-hmm. um, going on at this point. Now, some of the indications we have of, you know, like how much this was happening mm-hmm. can actually be found in contemporary colonial literature. So there is this whole genre from the 16th and 17th centuries um, where English adventurers or royal advisors or whoever go to Ireland and write books about like the lay of the land, okay. you know, what are the people like, like which areas are safe? What kind of food do they eat? You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, what's the most dangerous thing to do? Where can a traveller, you know, safely set up camp or okay. whatever? Uh, it's, a li- <laughs> it's a little bit like a really grim, lonely planet um, <laughs> guide or something. You know, what the climate is like, how to say a few words in the local language, things like that often. You know, which farming works best, where the rivers are, all that, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so it's very similar. If you wanted to compare it to something, it's very, very similar to the kind of exploration literature you get from adventurers in the New World, mm. um, who were kind of expanding westward in the New World at around the same time. And one of the things that these writers in these accounts are always saying is that the Irish are dangerous because... They have the woods. They have this protection of the forest that Mm. they can hide in. Keep in mind, by the way, that the felling of these forests when, you know, Ireland was significantly covered in mature ancient forests, felling them is no easy task. You know, like, this is going to take a lot of manpower. So even if, you know, everyone is is set to task felling felling all these forests, it's going to take some time. Uh, so the English poet Edmund Spencer is kind of notorious during this period for his book of in the genre. Mm. He writes a book called The View on the State of Ireland, which is grim in <laughs> all sorts of ways, okay. which actually maybe we is something I, w- I won't get into here because I'll talk about it forever. Uh, it's something that we will discuss in our after show debrief. Great. That's what we're going to do, Naomi. Let's do it. <laughs> So, listeners, as you know, we make after show extra content uh, where we debrief and say a little bit more about our episode. And you can find all of those shows on our Patreon uh, account. If you become a Patreon subscriber, you can find us at www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport. And you can listen to that debrief directly after this episode, Mm. if you like, straight away. Yeah, check it out. Anyway. 
Yes, do check it out. We'll remind you at the end of the episode of that address. And it will also be in the show notes. Okay, right. So this guy, Edmund Spencer, um, one of the things he mentions about these native Irish, or he calls them mere Irish, M-E-R-E, mere in the 16th century means native. That's, okay. that's the word they're using. He says, quote, They lurketh in the thick woods and straight passages, waiting for advantages. For the wood is his house against all weathers, and his mantle is his cave to sleep in. It is well known that he is a flying enemy, hiding himself in the woods and bogs, from whence he will not draw forth, but into some straight passage or perilous ford, where he knows the army most needs to pass. Gosh. (laughs) The um, so extra E's and yeah. Y's and stuff like that in that passage as it's written gives it an extra flavor, I have to say, that doesn't quite come across when you read it. It's very true. Yes, most of the consonants <laughs> in that passage are Y's. Uh, sorry, the vowels, I mean, are yeah. Y's. Um, and I, I, as I understand, you're supposed to pronounce it like that. I think it should be like, lurketh in the thicker wooders. You know, <laughs> I think that's how they spoke. But <laughs> anyway... So uh, he goes on, Spencer goes on to recommend that the woods should be felled. So this is one of the things he's reporting back to Westminster. You know, Edmund Spencer famously was like a a favourite of Queen Elizabeth I. Mm. He's high up in royal circles. And this is what he's doing. He's, you know, he's sending information back to the English administration. And he's saying, listen, if you want to travel, if you want to trade on this island without fear of attack from these mere Irish, quote unquote, Mm. uh, you need to cut down the trees. Mm. So at another point in the in the in the book, the view of the state of Ireland, he says, "I wish that order were taken for the cutting down and opening of all paces through woods, so that a wide way of the space of one hundred yards might be laid open in every of them for the safety of travellers, which use often in such perilous places to be robbed and sometimes murdered, murdered. sometimes murdered." <laughs> <laughs> It's a, a pet. It's a pet joy of mine when mur- murder is spelled with a th in these yeah. old texts. Murder. <laughs> <laughs> but if you didn't catch that, basically what he's saying is that he wants to cut down roadways, right, to passages, yeah. so that people can just get a straight passage through the forest. Straight passage through the forest, and also it seems to me like you want a fair bit of distance between between yourself and the woods because the attackers are lurking mm. in there, and they'll get you so you need to see them like coming across the land so like you need a wide road to go along so that they're they're not gonna reach out and grab you i guess what kind of scenarios are we talking about here is this like highwaymen this is yeah kind of yeah uh yeah so basically um we'll we'll see a little bit more of this in a minute but Mm. basically throughout this kind of plantation period and before as a kind of um collateral effect of colonization in Mm -hmm. Ireland, you end up with these displaced people Mm -hmm. who have nowhere to go, basically, except for into the woods. And they make a kind of living out of it. They become professional bandits Mm. who just stay in the woods. Uh, A lot of them might be on the run. And, you know, so like they might join up with other groups and kind of stay in the woods and kind of just create a new community. So they were known locally as kerns or wood kerns. Mm And this basically means a kind of soldier or bandit of the woods. And sometimes these people were used as mercenaries. You could hire them. Oh. You could hire these people who lived in the woods to like go and fight in your army, right? So they were a really formidable foe. And like you, you can understand actually when you see this guy saying you need to cut down walkways or pathways through the woods. Mm-hmm. Obviously what they're doing right now is these English adventurers with their carriages full of, you know, I don't know, um, building materials or trading whatever they're Cloth doing coming from whatever, Cork yeah. to Dublin or whatever yeah mm-hmm. traveling across the island they're just going through right through the dense forest there's mm-hmm. no paths for them at all mm-hmm. so of course it must be so dangerous for them mm. Mm. that's so interesting right uh, so even more interesting is another book from around this time called The Image of Ireland with a discovery of a wood kern. Right, oh. so we have this we have this name, a wood kern. And look how wood is in the name here. Yeah. Now, for this guy, wood kern is basically synonymous with native Irish, mere Irish, okay. like right they would say. Uh, so this is published by a guy called John Derrick. It was published in 1581. 
So about 10 years or 15 years before um, Spencer. And this is during the period of the Tudor plantations. So the before the Ulster plantations, it's the Tudor plantations, which are in Leash and Offaly, uh, mostly in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. And this book is, <laughs> it was interesting when I looked up, you know, people describing this book. Um, most people said, ah, it's not very good, but the images are really interesting. <laughs> Everyone's a bit mean about, about this guy's like <laughs> literary capacity. <laughs> Um, poor John Derrick uh, but he writes in it's a poem he writes in verse and he really doesn't like Catholics he really doesn't like Catholics okay. and he really doesn't like Irish people okay. in general uh, so this kind of idea of a discovery of a woodcurn it means he's explaining what the native Irish population are like basically okay. so forget the poem because it is a kind of it's a bit, bit of a piece of crap um, so instead Naomi I'm going to show you one of these images and the images okay, cool. really are something to look at we're going to put them up on Patreon if mm-hmm. you want to get a closer look. So here's the first one. I'm just going to uh, send this to you right now. Okay. All right, I'm looking at it. Okay, so can you describe what you see? Yes. Okay, so the, it looks like a kind of feast where these mm. guys are gathered around like a large plank of wood, which has dishes on it and like a one of those traditional like beer tumbler type things. Um, and mm. the guys are sitting around and there's a fire going. One, there's a, there's a dude playing a harp. And there's someone like maybe butchering a hunted animal, possibly a deer or a cow. Oh, wait, um, people are cooking. They're not cooking a baby, are they? Um, no, they're not. It, okay. it looks a little bit like they are, but they're not. Okay, they're cooking so. something. Um, and someone's mm. maybe, yeah, entertaining and a dog is eating a bone. And what's what's going on with the guys who look like they're getting their asses out? What's that about? <laughs> right. <Okay. laughs> right. Yes, I, I, I'll, I'll go through it all. Okay. Um, first of all, I want to ask you, yeah. where are they? Um, well, I can see a tree. So maybe they're in like a clearing, uh-huh. a clearing of some kind. They're, they're, they're in the woods, they're right? The I woods. mean, there's there's only a single tree, but yeah. it's enough to kind of tell us or to give us a setting, right? That they're in the woods. Yeah. These are wood curtains. It's a discovery of the wood curtains, I right? See. Um, and I, oh, oh, yes. Actually, now know, that I see, everything's yeah. made out of wood. So they've got this big plank table yeah, and then their fire mm. is actually made of like two branches and they're burning wood. Mm. Um, yeah, I can see that they're using all the wood to live. It's true. Yeah. yeah, actually, I hadn't really noticed that. They're using wood for so much, actually, yeah. in this in this scene. They have two fires made out of wood. They have a kind of, a, the, that, that little oven that they've set up is made out of wooden stakes as well. Yeah. yeah. And I imagine the plates, actually, at this time, the, the plates probably would have been made out of wood. And they're wearing furs. Too. There are loads of them are wearing furs. So I guess that's like haunted animal pelts. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so these are mere Irish. They're woodcurns. They're living in the woods. Those furs that they're wearing are the mantle. Uh, you might remember that Edmund Spencer referred to the mantle. Yes. Um, this is this typical furred kind of cloak that uh-huh. um, Irish people, Gaelic Irish people wore. And that for some reason, um, English settlers really took offence against. For some reason, they really hated this furry cloak thing. They were like, oh, the height of barbarism, your your fabulous furry cloak, but whatever. Um, Might take it up So, um, yeah, I mean, I would love one of these, right? I'm not how comfy it is. Uh, but he kind of described one thing, a few things. There's actually keys. There's a few letters on the picture where he tells us what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, what he's trying to get across is, A, you know, this is kind of barbaric. These are nobles. These are Irish Gaelic nobles. But they're in the forest. They're eating outside, kind of on the ground, right? Mm. They have, you know, it's it's kind of savage stuff, right? Yeah. Um, the we know who they are. They're the McSweeney's. Oh, I think it's the McSweeney clan. Um, because he mentions that at some point. Now we see Irish dancing. Do you see the guy Irish dancing? Oh, in the yeah, middle? yeah, yeah. The, so it's kind of showing this kind of savage form of dancing. And <laughs> the guy standing up. Um, we're told in the key underneath. The guy standing up is a bard, oh. and he's um, it, like it says in the verse. It says the bard who they gave all this importance to, which is so <laughs> weird and savage that he's the most important guy at the guest at, at the guest at, at the at the do, and he's telling apparently he's telling the harpist like you know what to play or whatever. Uh-huh. Now they're they're butchering the animal right beside the table, mm-hmm. which is part of the barbarity. I see. Um, because you know butchering an animal is really dirty and smelly, right? It's not something that you do right beside where you're just going to eat that animal, you right. know. Um, and those two guys at the on the right are, I think. Now it doesn't actually say this, but I think they're taking a poo. I think they're taking a poo in the fire okay. because there's little poos, <laughs> or there's little rocks around them that could be poos. Um, I thought it I might be like a jester or something like that. Okay. 
yeah. yeah so well, it's basically listen, saying these people have right. to have to shit like just there where they're eating or whatever yeah Possibly, yeah, mm. possibly. When I saw descriptions of this by people who probably um, understand a lot better than me, they said it was a joke. For okay. it was a joke that they're mooning, they're mooning the viewer. But one of them isn't mooning the viewer. One of them is like not facing us at all. So mm. I think I actually think that they're taking a poo. Okay. Anyway, right. Okay, I've got another one. I've got yeah. another one. Yeah, yeah. Um, very quickly. Well, I, we won't spend so much time in it. But here's a number two. I'm going to yeah. send it to you now. Okay, I'm looking at this. I can see that this is another wood setting, actually, because there's woods. Mm-hmm. And it's showing a group of soldiers on the left all together with, like, pikes or something. And then there's, mm-hmm. one, like, more, I guess, better armed ones coming from the right who have horses and stuff. And they're, oh, my God, they're burning a house. They're burning, mm-hmm. a like, a thatched house. And the people who own the house mm-hmm. are going, like, no! <laughs> Yes, okay, so this is a band of wood kerns okay. emerging from the woods. Okay. And what they're doing is, so they're on the left and there's, again, these symbolic woods, just a few trees to represent the woods, which is their natural habitat. Mm-hmm. And we see them emerging from the woods. One of them is playing a bagpipes okay. or some kind oh, of yeah. um, illin pipes, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's leading his army into war with his Gaelic instrument. They're all dressed in this kind of wood kern way with their long hair and their funny clothes. Yeah. And there's this actual division in the image of the wood on the left and then agricultural land on the right. Right. Everything on the right has been cleared. And this is colonial territory. Mm. Um, It seems, from the description, it seems that they're they're referencing the pale here. So these are wood currents entering the pale, entering this kind of um, settled agricultural zone where all the woods have been cleared. And what they're doing is they're driving all the animals out of the farms, out of these settlers' farms, and they're driving them back into the woods, oh. never to be seen again, right? So you can imagine this, you know, this scene where you have these these wood people come and take all your animals and then they disappear back into the woods and you can't go in after them because mm. it's too dangerous, you I know? See. Right. Okay, there's one more yeah. I'm going to show you. This is probably the most interesting Okay. Here it is. It's um, a guy covered in what I now know is a mantle. And he's standing in the woods. And he's got a little dog beside him. And he's all on his own. Okay. Right. That's basically it. Yeah. It's a guy all alone. It's just one figure. He's in the woods. Um, and okay. This is a defeated Gaelic rebel. Oh. Um, it's not what you might think when you first see it. This is an image of the defeated Gaelic rebel. And it's kind of this guy, John Derrick's vision of what's going to happen to the native Irish eventually. Oh. We're going to drive them back into the woods where they come from for them to perish there. They'll, you know, they go back to the woods where they belong and they won't bother us anymore is the idea. Mm. Because those little doggies, which I also t- thought were little doggies beside him, are not little doggies. Those are wolves. Oh, God. And they're coming to get him. <gasps> oh, yeah, there's actually yeah. more than one and they are coming to get him. They're coming to get him. Oh, gosh. Um, he has a little speech bubble that comes out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in Latin and it translates to something like, oh, I am so miserable. And the wolves have a little speech bubble that says something like, you haven't seen misery yet, dude. Oh, my God, that's <laughs> awful. <laughs> I know, it's really horrible. It's really horrible. Um, So there's this idea of, I think it's really interesting because it's a full circle Mm -hmm. in this imagery of the woods and the role that they play in Ireland from the colonial gaze. The woods are where the rebels come from and the woods are where we're going to put them back Mm -hmm. for good, right? Yeah. We'll put them up on Patreon. You can see them there. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I'll also post a link to the whole book up on Patreon if you want to read it for yourself. So as you, as you can kind of get from our conversation, forests had this intensely political significance in Ireland during the period of plantation. And interestingly, they continued to maintain a certain political dimension throughout the rest of the colonial period. Mm, right. And this is partly, like we said, because forests are an extremely valuable resource. Um, so we got wood, which is a source of fuel. But um, forests also had loads of other applications in, in like early industry. So bark from the trees was mm-hmm. really, really important for tanning or leather making. And just like today, you know, leather is expensive. Like mm. le- leather is a very expensive product. Um, and you need this bark to get the chemicals that you need for the leather making process. Um, also, charcoal, I understand, was really important to make iron. Mm. So you needed loads of wood, you know, just to, 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 to get through an iron smelting process and in quite high quantities. So that meant that if you controlled woodland, mm. land with lots of wood on it, you controlled access to all of those resources right. and you could it could make you very, very wealthy. 
And then, of course, you needed probably significant capital to maintain woodland because it takes time and patience to wait for trees to mature if you're planting them. So it wasn't really a viable mm. option for like small hold tenant farmers. Um, they would need to rely on arable agriculture or livestock, which has more immediate returns. Yeah, right. So we've seen this, of course, before. So during the 18th and the 19th century, this population of small hold tenant farmers in Ireland just balloons mm -hmm. and because the colonial administration during those centuries didn't want industry to develop on the island because they didn't want Irish industry to start um, uh, creating competition for British industry huh. um, all of these people were forced into agriculture basically just mm. by proxy so um, they were all in competition with each other to secure a part of agricultural land and that's not good news for woods right, right? it meant that people started mm. reclaiming land that was otherwise unviable in any way that they could. Mm. So, for example, they used to pile up seaweed on thin or rocky soil to create more substrate on which they could grow certain crops like potatoes. And you could also do that to a bog. Um, if you manage to divert the wetlands around a piece of higher ground, um, you can do that. So you'll often see like one single green field in the middle of a blanket bog in rural Ireland. And that's where someone managed to drain a small section and use it as pasture. And you can imagine that these tenant farmers who valued every square centimetre of land that they could get their hands on, they probably commit, contributed in a major way to the felling of trees in the countryside. It might not have even been direct. A lot of the farmers were raising livestock and they would have th those animals would have prevented any sapling growth in the area through grazing. And in some part of the country with very low soil fertility, herds of sheep, they weren't even penned into any particular area. They were just left to roam around the countryside and graze whatever they can. And that's been a nar natural deterrent um, and that has been a deterrent to forest regeneration for centuries. Mm, right, yeah. And then at the other end of the social scale in that agricultural system during those centuries, mm -hmm. we see the colonial elite who take quite a keen interest in forestry, actually, uh, during this time, because there's money in it, right? Mm. Um, you know, forests were so valuable uh, for industry around this time, partially because they had become so rare, um, not just in Ireland, but in Europe uh, in general. Mm. So... Even at that, um, with forestry being a valuable thing that you could do with your land, the island was still pretty much stripped of most of its forests. So that wasn't being managed very well. Mm -hmm. um, in 1780, there was a, a quite a famous visitor to Ireland, a, a traveller called Arthur Young, who published an account of his visit. And he comments on the striking lack of trees. Mm. And he says that this is even on the big landed estates, like even the landed estates don't ha really have that many trees in them. Uh, so I quote, he says, Through every part of Ireland in which I have been, 100 contiguous acres are not to be found without evident signs that they were once wood or at least very well wooded. The stumps of trees destroyed show that the destruction has not been of any ancient date. Mm. Lord Kingsborough has a 100,000 acres at Mitchellstown, in which you must take a breathing gallop in which to find a stick large enough to beat a dog. The greater part of the kingdom exhibits a naked, bleak, dreary view for want of wood, which has been destroyed for a century past. In conversation with gentlemen, I found that they very generally laid the destruction of timber to the common people, who, they say, have an aversion to a tree. Mm. But I am clear the gentlemen of the country may thank themselves. The profligate, prodigal, worthless landowner cuts down his acres and leaves them unfenced against cattle, and then he has the impudence to charge the scarcity of trees to the walking sticks of the poor. Wow, that's a really powerful piece. Gosh, um, <laughs> what a quote. That's fascinating. I mean, you know, they're yeah. prob prob probably both at it. Like, the, one of the things is that when people become really impoverished and on, you know, on the edge, they will scrounge around for anything to burn. Um, and so it, yeah. it becomes like you get to a tipping point that is really, really hard for forests to grow back. Even if they if they were mm. able to grow back, it would give people more resources. So it's a horrible image, isn't it? This sort of like bleak landscape of tree stumps with yeah. people just like scouring the remains and trying to survive yeah it, it's so interesting isn't it? Mm. it and it's really a visual thing that you can see and it's so interesting that he dates it to a hundred years he said a yeah. century hence and yeah. I, I wonder is he trying to say there that this was land cleared for the plantations or um or is he kind of hinting at some particular thing you know it's yeah, not yeah, quite yeah. plantation a uh, hundred years ago it's more like 200 years ago for for those people uh but still 
Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And mm. what I found really interesting was that, you know, he's kind of taking the side of the common people here. He's saying, yeah. um, he's very much putting himself in a position and saying that the denuding of Ireland of its trees is landlord mismanagement. Right. Uh, which, you know... Like, it's very believable. It yeah. fits in, certainly it fits into a kind of pattern or at least a narrative, you know, considering their general behaviour <laughs> of kind of cutting into their capital, right? This yeah. is what landlords in Ireland were constantly doing, kind of eating into their own capital, doing really unwise things financially because they wanted instant cash. Right. They just weren't really thinking about the future. Um, you know, they were kind of flittering away uh, the goose that laid the golden egg to, right. to make an incredible mixed metaphor there. Um, <laughs> and that, therefore, they like they don't have the foresight to invest in anything that requires as much patience or right. foresight as growing a forest. Right. Mm. Westminster recognised quite early on that the deforestation of Ireland had contributed to its economic hardship. And quite a few pieces mm. of policy were put through in the 18th and 19th centuries to try to encourage the planting and maintenance of new forests. But ultimately, to very little effect. Yeah, right. So in this context, it isn't really the destruction of natural heritage that we're talking about. This is the destruction of a resource that Mm -hmm. could make the country richer if it was managed properly. So in other words, uh, you know, this is, like I said, is falling into this more general discourse of mismanagement. Um, Like Young also mentions, which is quite interesting, that if an Irish peasant uh, during this time in 1780, if an Irish peasant was found with any amount of wood that they couldn't account for, mm-hmm. they could be fined 40 shillings, okay. which is more or less equivalent to over a thousand euros in today's oh money. God. So it just shows you how valuable and how scarce wood was as a resource by this stage. Right. And that it's an issue that people are going around and gathering it. Um, And considering Mm. that value, you can imagine how impressive the wooded parkland on larger landed estates must have been at the time, like the remaining stuff. Mm. In much of Ireland today, these former landed estates are home to some of the main surviving forests. And even at that, like Young said back in 1780, they aren't particularly extensive in comparison to wooded parkland in Britain or mainland Europe. Yeah, right. So like there's the same kind of idea all over anywhere where there's remnants of a feudal system right Mm -hmm. um but if you if you go to big landed estates in france like the woodland the forest land around them is so huge Mm. that you know it's kilometers and kilometers squared that you do kind of get worried about getting lost in them Mm. you know you if there weren't waymarks or anything it would be completely feasible to like wander into one and not find your way out for a few days you know and there is nothing like that in ireland like most landed estates really only have a few fields worth of trees if if even right and of course A lot of these are much smaller today than they even were in Arthur Young's day. And that's due to a number of reasons. Um, But one of the big ones is a moment in Irish history, which we keep coming back to, which is the land war. Uh Yes, friend of the podcast, Naomi. The land war. <laughs> Probably the, the closest and most intimate friend of the podcast, uh, despite, uh, except for Winston Churchill, maybe comes a close second, uh, is, is the land war. It really, I mean, I cannot just stress enough how much the formation of modern Ireland was shaped by this one particular moment in history. And it's cropped up in so many of our discussions, yeah. uh, sometimes where you least expect it, like here, like here it is again. Um, so this is, of course, this momentous movement where there's a boycott, a, like a popular boycott of landlords in Ireland by the rural peasantry. It's yes. led by nationalist leaders who used it as part of a political strategy to attain home rule in the 1880s. So we're in 1880s at this point. And to cut a long story short, the land war kind of ends with a series of legislation which made it easier for peasants to buy the plots of land that they were renting mm-hmm. from these big um, landlords. So we've mentioned the statistic before, but it's worth coming back to. So before the 1880s, only 3% of land in Ireland was owned by the farmers who worked on it. Mm -hmm. Basically, the whole country was owned by this tiny coterie of landlords, about 800 people. By the 1930s, so 50 years later, 97% of farmers owned their own land in Ireland. Mm -hmm. So we're basically seeing the transfer of the entire country, more or less, into new proprietorship. And we're also seeing a massive change of land usage at this point, Mm. right? Um. You know, those trees, for instance, right? They're all going to become farms now. Right. Um, the land war, it's worth remembering, also threw a lot of landlords into debt. 
And, you know, because they weren't able to maintain these exploitative rent practices that they had been carrying on with before, that, you know, they had to, like, yeah, yeah, I won't get into it, (laughs) but they were in debt. So when you're in debt as an Irish landlord, what's the first thing that you start to sell off? The trees. The trees. Any, you know, if the there's trees any left at this really point. Viable. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you, you've kept a few acres of decorative, basically, trees now around your house. Mm-hmm. They're the first thing that's going to go if you're going to try and save the house. And, um, you know, you can sell them. And once the trees are gone and the wood has, you know, brought in probably quite a lot of money, if you're still in debt, you're going to have to start selling off that land. Mm. And once the land that used to hold the trees is gone, that's going to be used for agriculture. So if you compare maps of Ireland from the late 19th century, before the land war, with aerial maps today, I mean, there are so many wooded landed estates that are just gone. And they've been completely transformed into mainly livestock pastures. Niall O'Carroll notes in Forestry in Ireland, a Concise History, that, for example, between 1922 and 1928, some 650 acres of mature woodland was felled and sold by the landlords of Castle Duro Estate, and the bare land that was left behind was carved up and sold to local farmers. He also notes that this was often the very last resort of old landlord families in Ireland, as the trees were, in a way, a testament to their presence on the land for hundreds of years. The destruction of the estate forests was, of course, highly symbolic of the destruction of the estate's own legacy and authority in the community, like literally taking it away and selling it piece by piece. And more than that, removing any trace of that sort of heritage, the proof that it had been on the landscape in the first place. It also represented the relinquishing of this major piece of economic capital, and it must have resonated quite uncomfortably with the old stereotype of a feckless landlord who just couldn't manage his own land and had to abandon his Irish estate. Mm, Right. So now, it's really interesting. So if we come up now to the turn of the century, Mm -hmm. um, uh, turn of the 20th century, O'Carroll also explains how the state really struggled to bring trees back. Mm -hmm. At this stage, let's say by the 1890s, uh, Westminster was undergoing its constructive unionism policy. Mm -hmm. You can listen to our episode on constructive unionism uh, to find out more about that. Um, And part of this was to try and get money into Ireland through setting up forest plantations. So they were saying, listen, there's loads of land here we can use for trees. Um, And that will make the country money. It will kickstart the economy. Mm -hmm. So what they want to do is maintain the farms. You know, farming, remember, agriculture was number one income uh, for the Irish economy. They don't Mm -hmm. want to use farmland for these trees. But there was loads of uh, what they called marginal land. And they wanted to plant forests on this marginal land. Uh, So the first experiment was carried out at a place called Knockboy in Mm. the west of Ireland. It's near the village of Karna, where an amazing... 2.6 million saplings were planted in the 1890s. I think it's over the course of about three years. 2.6 million. Like this was a huge project. Yeah. And this was an experiment. And if this was going to work, they were going to do it everywhere. That was the idea, right? They were going to just put forests on all of this kind of marginal land, quote unquote. But the issue was, because there was no trees there at all Mm. in the first place... It was really hard to get trees to grow because they had no protection from the elements. You know, Mm. just planting a tree in the middle of a vast empty space is not that easy, Mm. especially when that empty space isn't particularly nutrient rich, right? Right. So the trees would grow small. They wouldn't, you know, they'd be stunted and they'd kind of die after a few years. Here's a statistic for you now. By the end of the 19th century, forest cover in Ireland had fallen to one percent in other words there were practically no trees left on the entire ireland and it wasn't until after independence that that number began to recover the irish free state and later on the republic understood that the absence of forests on the island was an economic hindrance to the country just as it had been in the 19th century Uh, for them restoring forests on the island was like an opportunity for prosperity that's how it was seen Mm, right and there was also a kind of nationalist side to this as well quite interestingly Mm -hmm. so this cropped up in O'Carroll as well that a lot of um, a lot of people who had been involved in the nationalist movement in particular a guy called Bulmer Hobson Mm -hmm. who was a former IRB volunteer 
they were they saw forestry as a key to reviving the Gaeltacht, right? Mm. So the the western uh, Irish speaking areas of the island where which had been mostly devastated by the famine, which had never really recovered from immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, they believed that if you could get forestry going here, it would be a native industry basically mm-hmm. it would be this massive industry for everyone who lives there and that you know people wouldn't have to emigrate from that area anymore mm-hmm. right um and also it was in these areas where a lot of the farmland or sorry a lot of the land was not really farmable it mm-hmm. was quote unquote marginal yeah so there was these dreams like and you see it cropping up again and again and again there's these dreams of reviving the Gaeltacht um with with forests mm-hmm. And like, I, you know, I talked about Knock Boy earlier. People were were so, um, like I looked it up. People were so into this. When I looked up Knock Boy in, on old maps, mm-hmm. it was already painted in in green. They had painted in this whole area because they were so sure the forest would take off, oh, you wow. know. And um, there's little pictures of trees all over. They had a forestry um, center there and everything, like for the for people to, to work and to live and to look after the forest. And when you look at aerial photographs today, you can see what's left. Mm. It's almost completely like empty, but there's like bits of trees that have somehow survived since right. the 1890s in Knock Boy. It's kind of fascinating to wow. look at, uh, but nothing like what they wanted. And so this is still going on in like ni- the 1950s. So mm-hmm. um, in 1955, um, a, a TD called Kathleen O'Connor, I think she was an independent TD, she wanted the same thing to happen in County Kerry. Okay. And the government was saying, like, listen, we tried this when we tried this 50 years ago, but still, mm. we, we, you know, this has been tried in Connemara and all the trees died. And she's basically saying you're not trying hard enough okay. and that the people of the Gaeltacht deserve forest. She says, uh, I quote, there is ample evidence that this land has been planted centuries ago and grew timber successfully. In my own memory and in my father's memory, mm-hmm. this land was held by the landlords, the Blenner Hassets of Ballysidi. It grew trees then, and it was a crime to take the trees. Mm-hmm. Now the experts of 1955 tell us this land is un- unsuitable for tree growing. A big portion of North Kerry forms a Gaeltacht area, and yet the forestry section has not given one bit of a grant or planted a single tree in this four-seat constituency. That's super interesting. A lot going on there. Yeah, there's so much going yeah. on. Blenner Hassett is a familiar name. I went to I went to school with the Blenner Hassett. Um, the, oh yeah, yeah. The uh, it's funny that um, there's this uh, like association between the Gaeltacht and trees, which I don't think really endures. Mm. Like that's a kind of historical mm. curiosity at this point. Um, but yeah, it's like yeah. fascinating. Um, yeah. Like remember that plantation programs had been set in motion by the independent Irish government from the get-go in 1922, but they were fairly modest um, considering the resources of the new Irish state. Now, entry into the European Union in 1973 gave an unprecedented impetus to those government plantations because it offered subsidies for the tree planting projects and also set up targets for annual forest plantations. Right. So if we come up to the second half of the 20th century, we can actually see Mm -hmm. this new kind of um, strategies or new sets of strategies for planting trees cross over with the strategies for the peat bogs. Mm. This uh, crops up again in O'Carroll's book, actually. Um, The peat bogs had been industrially harvested since the 1940s. Right. Uh, So the independent Irish state, you know, realised this is a major resource. It's fuel. There's just loads of fuel lying in the centre of the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they set up a semi-state body called Board Namona, which just means the the management company of the peat, basically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was a weird translation. but (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Peat board. uh, Yeah, the peat board. There you go, yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) So by the 1980s, um, so that's about 40 years later, a lot of the bogland in the Midlands was gone. Like it had been industrially cut away and it left behind this kind of useless terrain that you couldn't farm which was called uh, Cutaway Bog. So Mm. it's still there. And the Irish state said, well, here we are. This is, you know, the Cutaway Bog. We can't do anything else with it. This is the perfect place for a tree, for Mm. forest trees, right? Um, So uh, what they do is, you know, this is really, really acidic ground. Mm -hmm. So what they do is start planting 
monocultures of non-native spruce trees uh, in these cutaway bogs, mm-hmm. which are very, very productive in terms of timber, but are pretty much useless in providing, let's say, habitats for native wildlife. Right, right. And they grow everywhere, which is why they can grow in this acidic environment. And it's really, we've come full circle, right? Considering that those bogs largely existed in the first place because the trees were cut down thousands of years ago. This issue of spruce plantations has been a major issue with Irish forestry. Like we mentioned earlier that forest cover was reduced to somewhere around 1% at the beginning of the 20th century. By the beginning of the 21st century, that figure had jumped up to something like 11%. Now, that sounds on the surface of it a great achievement. But when you consider how much of that consists of these spruce tree monocultures, it's actually quite disappointing. A lot of people you know, have basically denounced these Sitka spruce plantations as essentially ecologically dead zones. Yeah, right. And you can almost like see this or smell this or sense this almost like immediately if you're anywhere near these um, plantations. Uh, So if you drive through Ireland, you may have come upon one. Um, Like they're pretty extensive and they really stick out. You really notice them because generally they have been grown in this marginal land. So they're, you know, more likely than not, they are surrounded by completely treeless landscape. And there's right. just these squares of Sitka spruce, like, uh, on the landscape. That's it. Um, and they're really, you know, they're all planted in lines, geometrical shapes. And they basically, they don't look like forests. They look right. like huge industrial Christmas tree farms. Like, that's what you, I, I actually kind of thought that that's what they were for a long time before yeah. I understood that this is what was happening. That's exactly mm. it, right? It's not really reforestation. It's tree farming, right? It's farming of a, of a monoculture crop for the purposes of timber or biofuel or whatever it happens to be. Um, And there's a report that was made for the Department of Agriculture in 2020 that actually found that forestry in Ireland was actually increasing greenhouse gas emissions uh, rather than acting as a carbon sink. Because if they're only, you know, these trees are, you know, genetically selected to grow very fast, they're being cut down all the time, and the land that they're on um, may have carbon in it. So all in all, it's just, they're not actually trapping and keeping carbon. And on top of that, like we say, it's an ecologically dead zone. The native wildlife can't eat that stuff, you know. Um, It's important to think about forests as not being just trees, but actually like an ecological system, right? It's all these different species that have grown up in an interdependent way that rely on each other. Uh, So it's like a whole thing. It's not just simply the trees by themselves. This has been an amazing historical overview that we've gone through. And we'll call this, (laughs) I suppose, like part one of our tree episode. Because in part two, we are going to explore how this issue is being um, explored, I suppose, in the current day. We've talked a lot about efforts to replant trees. And there's an argument that if you wanted to restore the forests of Ireland, there might be a certain role for tree planting. But really what needs to be done is actually something that's really hard for humans to do, which is to just step back. The ancient forests and the natural ecosystems of Ireland do actually persevere in tiny, tiny pockets, places that are inaccessible, like odd ledges of mountains or along the sides of rivers or in crevices where humans can't reach. And there's an argument that what needs to happen is those areas just need to be protected and allowed to grow by stopping livestock from grazing around them. And they already contain all those different species that are a self-sustaining ecosystem. So the right insects, the right plants, they're all like interdependent that can grow the forest. Trees just simply planted by themselves in areas where they might not be well adapted don't recreate that whole self-sustaining ecosystem which developed over millions of years. So in our next episode, we are going to go and take you to a place where this is happening. I recently visited the Barra Peninsula, which is in southwest Cork. It's a relatively uh, remote and still quite wild part of Ireland. And it's the site of an experiment, really, in the regeneration of Irish forest. It's overseen by a man called Owen Dalton. He's a guy originally from Dublin who bought a small plot of land in this relatively wild area that still had some old growth forest in it clinging on. And he basically ring fenced it and he oversaw its regeneration and growth, mostly by just excluding grazing animals from eating saplings 
and just letting the forest get on itself. So I went down there, I spoke to him and I explored the forest and learned about it. And I spoke to him about this whole experience, which is also recounted in a book uh, which he wrote, which is called An Irish Atlantic Rainforest and recently won a prize at the Irish Book Awards. Right, so we will hear all about that in part two of this episode. Uh And if you can just not contain yourself and you need more tree content (laughs) right now... I never really thought any of these words would be coming out of my mouth, Naomi, but we are going to continue talking about trees <laughs> because, believe it or not, there's actually like, we haven't even, we have loads of notes in front of us. We haven't even gotten a little bit through them. Uh, so we're going to continue talking about trees in an, um, in a Patreon only after show debrief, which if you are a Patreon subscriber, you can go and listen to right away. If you are not a Patreon subscriber, I remind you, you can go and become one today and support the continued making of the podcast. You can find us at www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport. Yes, and that link is in the show notes. There's a ton of episodes there, including a recent one by Tim, which is all about an exhibition of Irish art inspired by the border. And yes, we will have this bonus content and many, many more tree episodes to come coming there. (laughs) More than you would think. Yeah, (laughs) right. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening as always and we'll tree you next time. Oh. (laughs) Oh my God, that was painful, Tim. Okay. Oh, it just came right to me. (laughs) Slow for now.